Happy to have you aboard here for the really big barbecue show. Boing. We cook because we have to, and we grill because we want to. Hit me. Fine. How you want? You have a great show. I'm a big fan. Boing. So what? What? What seems to be the problem here? This man looks like he's dead, and he's in the in the crackle. Charbono. It's all about the Charbono, dude. Succulent fish. What? He ate two feet wiener. Oh, listen, Lavernius, shut your face. I'm shaking like a dog shit peach seed. <laughs> we have top men working on it right now. And just like that, we are into the second hour. Welcome aboard. It's the Barbecue Central Show. Getting into the second hour, if you've missed the first hour. Shame on you. The good news is this. We're recording, so you can get the first hour live to- uh, well, on podcast tomorrow. And then the second hour on Thursday. And I'll talk to you about Friday here in a second. Hit me. Here's a question from Kevin Evans. Is the show run out of a radio station? It runs much like a radio show. It's always it always has bugged me since I watch on YouTube. Uh, Kevin, the show is not done out of a radio station. It on purpose runs like a radio show because it's a live show. I you rarely will you find me doing an hour or an hour and a half long interview with somebody. It's just not the way I prefer to do it. I would rather you wanting a little bit more. I can ask some pointed, good, intrusive questions during the time together in those interview segments. And if it's good, we can always run back. That's why we have a stable of recurring guests. That's why we have quarterly guests. And then we have your sprinkled through new guests throughout the year. You know, all the way back, Kevin, initially, the goal of the show when I started doing it live on internet radio, whatever that means, was to be able to trans or, or the goal was uh, setting it up like a radio show because I thought for sure somebody was going to see my talent and want to put me on syndicated radio across the country for three hours on a Saturday. I was destined to happen. Fame and fortune and adulation and all that stuff. However, it wasn't the case. And I've just kept the format like that. And uh, I prefer to do interviews like this. Uh, If it was just a straight podcast, it would probably have a different feel to it. I have no doubt about it. But it's a live show. and This is how we've kept the format. The format has changed here and there a little, but by and large, mostly the same structure. Uh, And don't worry, I'm not taking this in a bad way. I certainly appreciate it. I'm glad you are able to recognize what a professional show sounds like. Uh, Don't forget, you can follow me socially on these Instagram handles at BBQ Central Show, on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. Snapchat slash BBQ Central Show on Facebook and Twitch for a video feed. Also slash RD Rempe 
for a feed on uh, for a video feed on YouTube. Coming up on the best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less this Friday. Episode 180 from June 2012 featuring the first Tuesday of the month regular guest not Malcolm Reed, Sam the cooking guy. You know, I've been a huge big major honk for chorizo sausage over the past number of years. It's one of the main ingredients in my favorite Mexican dish ever, choripollo. But back in 2012, when I was having my then second interview with Sam the Cooking Guy, I was not on the chorizo bandwagon as I listened back to that show. I didn't really know anything about it. In fact, we spent a tremendous amount of time talking about a simple chorizo cream sauce that he was making at that point, amongst many other things. But Sam said, hey, you should have chorizo in your refrigerator. It should always be something that you're reaching for. You should keep this chorizo cream sauce always ready to go. Goes good on a number of different things. So back in 2012, I wasn't nearly as enlightened on chorizo as I should have been. But I am now. I love it. I mean, who's been a bigger proponent of Chori Pollo than me? Nobody. Chori Pollo, everybody. Margaritas, 50% off. Free guacamole. Love Chori Pollo. Don't forget, if you want to hear a guest or segment again that has been lost in the archive somewhere, email John and let him know what you would like to hear. J-O-N, John at the BBQ Central Show.com, and he will do his best to put something together for you. And don't forget, this Friday we'll have a Sam the Cooking Guy best of. And then there's this. You know, I don't ask a lot in my life. I'm a worker. I like to work. I like to work for a company. I don't have to be the boss guy. Nothing like that. I like to be behind the scenes and get things done most of the time. But sometimes I like it when I have something that nobody else has. An exclusive, something just for me to bring to you. And in this particular instance, it has been the exclusive reveal of the Barbecue Hall of Fame finalists and ultimately those who actually get inducted into the Barbecue Hall of Fame this year. It's an exclusive thing, which is why it makes it special. If everyone knew in advance, who was getting into the Barbecue Hall of Fame? Or who the final names, uh, those final nine names are before we even know who gets into the Barbecue Hall of Fame uh, three weeks early? There would be no reason for me to continue to partner with the American Royal on those two special shows that we have now done for the past three years. This was the third year. So if somebody knows, or if somebody can tell me why in the sweet hell Barbecue Hall of Famer, famous Dave Anderson, would want to rip that joy away from me, I would love to know. Dave posted on his Facebook page the names of all of the Hall of Famers 15 minutes or so before we did the live reveal on this show now Two Wednesdays ago, which in all facets 
ruined the announcement of the show. Not exclusive anymore. Not breaking news anymore. Not a secret anymore. As Sam the Cooking Guy said last week, it's only a secret if nobody knows. And the minute you tell one other person, it's not a secret. Why would he do this? What have I ever done to famous Dave Anderson to have him blast me in the package like this? I mean, last week or two weeks ago or the week before that, whatever it was, I went on to say that it was a travesty that he was in one of the worst barbecue shows ever on the Food Network a number of years back, and he snapped his stick running to the reefer truck in order to fetch his vittles. Now I wish he would have snapped both legs. So what happened? Was it a PR hack for famous Dave that did it and secretly run Dave's Facebook page? But I don't think that's the case. Did he just blow by the instructions sent to him from the American Royal on when to post the promo material? What was it? Because I'm operating under the impression here that if this info was shared to the other Hall of Fame members earlier two Wednesdays ago, that there had to have been some kind of instruction on when they were allowed to share this information, specifically after 3 p.m. Eastern or perhaps 3.30 p.m. after. And yet, there it was, all the names, all the faces, spreading around the internet 15 minutes before the big reveal, like a fresh batch of herpes. Who does such nonsense on purpose? And if it was done on purpose, then, or if it wasn't done on purpose, who's in charge of your social postings, Dave? And does the person know how to read? Because I know there were instructions. Can't you people leave one thing for me? Do you have to rip everything for me in order to be first? Let me have it. I cultivated it. I was the person that got the Hall of Fame to reveal all of their processes, reveal the names of the committee members, reveal how the voting takes place. And my reward is to have famous Dave Anderson scoop me on my big day. Dave, how dare you? How dare you? And that's what happened. Because people were bombarding me with tweets. Words out. We all know who's in. Guess what? That screws me. I was playing hooky from work Wednesday. Think my boss knew that? No. You think he knows now? Yes. Formally employed Peterbilt salesman Greg Reppy right here. Hey, uh, before we get to Adrian Miller, let me talk to you quickly about Green Mountain Grills. A couple different lines to choose from. A choice line if you want to save a couple bucks. If you don't need all of the stuff that comes along with a lot of the technological pellet cookers out there these days, get the choice line. Big cooker, Jim Bowie. Middle cooker, Daniel Boone. Good size either way. If you want the biggest one, Jim Bowie. Middle size, Daniel Boone. 
Both accommodate the pizza oven insert. So does the Prime Plus line. We'll get to that here in a second. But you like to be around the cooker. You like the, the feel of it. You want to see stuff. You don't want to be told everything. Fine. Now, if you want all the other gadgets, technology, so forth, Prime Plus line is what you want. It's got peeking windows on the main cooking chamber and the pellet hopper. You now have Wi-Fi connectivity. You can download an app, control the grill right from your phone if you want to, make cooking temperature adjustments up or down. You can turn it off if you want to. You can set step-by-step cooking instructions. So if it hits a time or a temp, it will now go to step two or step three. Technologically advanced like no other cooker out there on the market today. That's Prime Plus. Spend a couple extra bucks, get a little bit more of a robust build, two internal meat probe, the list goes on. It's up to you. What kind of cooker are you? Pick the right one. Sold by dealers. So go to GreenMountainGrills.com, find a dealer nearest you, and then they will educate you. You will find the cooker that's right for you. You will take it home. You'll be successful right off the bat. It's a win-win. Go to GreenMountainGrills.com. That's GreenMountainGrills.com. Check out all the products that they have there, pellets and sauces and rubs, all that stuff. And off and away you go. GreenMountainGrills.com. We are back with Adrian Miller. Stick around. Be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. And this portion being brought to you by Pit Barrel Cooker. The most unbelievable outdoor cooking device on the planet. Currently available in two sizes with a host of accessories. Whether you're a beginner or professional, definitely a cooker you want to add to the arsenal. Visit pitbarrelcooker.com and tell them the Barbecue Central Show sent you. Uh, We will have either Amber or Noah Glanville on in two weeks' time. It was supposed to be this week, but uh, their announcement of new stuff got pushed back a couple weeks. So, hey, we've rescheduled. We'll have them on in a couple weeks' time, and then you will be told all of the new stuff that's going on with Pit Barrel Cooker and pitbarrelcooker.com. All right, last week we had him on. We had some technical hurdles up front and didn't get through everything that I wanted to get through, and he was gracious enough to come back on this week, the author of Black Smoke, amongst other books, is Adrian Miller, and we're back with him. Hey, Adrian. What up? Uh, we are back. Thank goodness, and the, you, your schedule is free enough for you to come back on, so I appreciate you making the time. And uh, let's do this. I'm going to attempt to recap where we got last week, and then okay. we can pick up from where we left off, and then if I'm off base here, you just jump in and tell me where i'm at you take over the reins of the memorial day cook and your dad approves first and foremost we love that yeah the black smoke book origins were actually born out of the soul food book you wrote and you realized that this was a subject that was going to then need its own book which is out now the goal of black smoke is to make sure that the african-american heritage is given the proper credit for their role in the barbecue uh, landscape and the black pit masters are given equal exposure in media today versus the quote, same people over and yeah. over again through your yeah. research. Native Americans are the founders of barbecue as we know it today, but you've left the door open 
in case new info is found crediting African Americans or whoever else you might find. Let me ask you, are we leery about this because Europeans are writing the reference materials? Or is this why we are leaving the proverbial door open at this time? Yeah, so that's a great recap, man. I, I'm, I'm impressed by your powers of recall. Yes. So, um, yeah, so th- there's a couple things going on, right? Um, two of the major players out of the three are oral tradition history people, so West Africans and Native Americans. So they're not from a literary tradition. So, you know, I'm steeped in a literary tradition growing up here. And so, yes, we're relying on Europeans um, for basically the information about the early days of barbecue. And we know that sometimes they weren't really good at recording what they saw, and sometimes they had an agenda. So we're leery for those reasons, but the, the, there are depictions, right? There's stuff that we can look at and try to piece together. Um, I wish they had paid a little bit more detail to some things, but yeah. So um, that's that's part of it. But it, a lot of the evidence points toward a Native American um, foundation, uh, but there, there, it's not a shared opinion, right? There are some people out there that really believe there's an African provenance. I didn't see it, but like I said, if somebody connects the dots, then hey, because uh, it's one of the most delicious things on the planet. So I would love to say it's from Africa, but right now it seems like it's from the Americas. And and, and other things, just to add on this real quick, sure. um, you know, part of it is the Europeans that arrive in the Americas, you know, f- late 1400s, they see what indigenous people are doing. And they talk about it as if it's something new. And they had been in Africa, West Africa, for at least a century before that. So I'm, I would just think that somebody would have commented upon that. So uh, The last part of the recap that I was going to mention was that you also lent verification to Virginia being the birthplace of American-style barbecue, so much so that at the time, let's say like back in the 1830s, it was actually called having a Virginia barbecue. It wasn't just like, hey, we're going to get together and have a barbecue. It was specifically referenced, so that's a, a good place to say this is where it started, right? Yeah, and I, I credit Joseph Haynes, his book, Virginia yep. Barbecue. For anybody who's really interested in this history of it, yeah, you should pick that book up. It's one of the better books. And, uh, you know, I started looking through newspapers, and it was interesting. I, I read the, an account of a Virginia barbecue happening in Kentucky. So then again, you know, the fact that they didn't call it a Kentucky barbecue, but they said it was a Virginia barbecue hosted by a Virginian, uh, yeah, cemented that kind of Virginia status as the birthplace of barbecue, Southern barbecue. All right. So we're talking with Adrian Miller here. You can go to adrianmiller.com and check out what he has going on there. You can obviously grab the book Black Smoke if you want. I've uh, linked in the newsletter to uh, a page that has the book and there were uh, spices as well. It was like a whole a package that was going on do you do you're doing autographs too <laughs> i am so yeah if you order from my website i'll sign it any way you want if you want me to say i couldn't have written it without you happy to do it i'm just happy that you're getting my book so the 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 ongoing gag with me is if you send me a copy i can go ahead and like we'll do a contest but then everybody wants me to autograph the author's book so I always say like, hey, Jim, I uh, hope you really like this book that I had no part in writing, blah, blah, blah. Thanks for listening to the show. And I mean, it's like a, uh, I think it started with uh, Jamie Proviance like uh, seven or eight years ago. He actually sent me one of his books to autograph for him to send back to him. So it's, uh, oh, it's I'm one doing of that. Things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so definitely doing that. We will uh, look to give away a copy of Black Smoke autographed by me. You will, of course, uh, counter autograph before you send it to me, but I'll be sure to add my autograph. So um, let's go ahead and pick up from here. So, I mean, we kind of referenced it in the recap. 
But let me ask this question again, so just so you can expand on it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. When we talk about getting Black Pitmasters back into uh, or back onto center stage or in the spotlight, because it doesn't appear at this stage that there's equal time for whatever the reason is. Uh, they're not yeah. getting the, the same amount of access, or as you would put it, it seems to be the same folks recurring on media, in publication, or on television. How do, how do we get past that? How do we rectify that? Yeah, so one thing is um, we got to put the pressure on these shows. Uh, when they're not diverse, people need to chime in on social media and contact folks and say, look, what's up with this? Uh, why aren't you having more African-Americans or people of color on these shows? Uh, and so the good thing is that we are starting to see change. Um, we're starting to see more cookbooks by African-American pitmasters coming out. Uh, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue is one example. And dig this, man. Uh, his book is the first by an African pitmaster in 30 years. Uh, and think about all the book, book, barbecue books that have come out. That can't and I know be right. A, a couple other. Yeah. You mean in America? Isn't that up? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I know Robert <laughs> Rainford has had, uh, you know, a couple books out, but he's technically Canadian, so not, not American. Yeah. Yep. And there's a British guy that's put a couple books out. But in terms of Americans, wow. yeah, that's it. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've got, we've got more barbecue shows coming out with diverse casts. So, you know, we're starting to see, but we have a ways to go. I mean, uh, there's a lot of ground to be made up for here. Uh, so I think one of the things is that we who love barbecue programming have to clamor for more diversity. Uh, and, and these shows will respond. Is it, um, I don't want to like dive into the to race stuff yet. Cause I want to hold that off for a separate discussion, but you know, as a fan or somebody who champions barbecue shows, uh, I'm not being hypocritical here. When I say I'm not a fan of most barbecue shows because I don't like the format. I like the people on it. Most of them have been on my show as a guest, but as far as format, I don't like the chopped style shows or the perceived uh, drama that's going on or the manufactured bullshit that's going on. Uh, so I don't, I don't go out of my way to watch them, but I do want to champion those. So if I'm not a minority or a woman or a black person or Chinese, whatever, I just kind of watch it and I might say to myself, oh, it seems like it's the same people again. But I think that's where my mind stops. I don't go any deeper into that. Is that kind of a normal thought process? I think so, because I think people are just, you know, they're there for the people who do like those shows, right? They're there for the competition. They're there for the spectacle aspect of it. So there may not be a lot of deep thinking about, well, you know, why is it the same people over and over? Who gets conferred authority in this field and who's getting the shine? And then ultimately, who's making the money, right? Um, And I got to tell you, I didn't think deeply about this stuff either. Um, Most of my deep thinking about barbecue by the time of the early 2000s was, hey, this tastes really good. (laughs) Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't until I started watching these shows. Um, and then the, the, the pivotal show was Paula Dean's Southern barbecue, whole hour show on barbecue in the South. Not one black person was on air. The closest we get is the sign of the Stubbs barbecue and Stubbs, you know, CB Stubbafield was long dead. That's the closest we got. And so I'm thinking like, how's that happen? And then I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Dean's Scandinavian barbecue sponsored by Alabama white sauce. And I just got it twisted while I was watching the commercial. (laughs) Probably not. But is it so So, is, is the, is the 
easy answer back to you saying, well, I, I want to do more diversity or I want to have more of an eclectic cast, but I also have to go in turn and sell this to sponsors. So I need the money first before or I, I need to get something cemented in with this uh, this station or this programming company before I can really do what I want to do. Right. You know, that maybe have been a stronger argument 20 years ago, but man, barbecue was so popular. I just think no matter who you slap on, you know, put on the screen, uh, as long as you have a compelling format, it's going to it's going to do well. Uh, so I, I, th- I think that case is less so today because uh, barbecue is just hugely popular, man. Uh, I, I, I kind of thought it would lose steam a few years ago. I see no signs of that happening anytime soon. And then, you know, you watch these shows and a lot of these people are really obscure. So, you know, the kind of like get the celebrity, the A-list person, that just doesn't hold, man, because I'm watching these shows. And I'm like, who's that? And I'm not as steeped in the barbecue world as you are. But, you know, a lot of these dudes and women I've never heard of. <laughs> So that that even hurts even more. You know, you're just like pulling all of these other people out and you can't find one brother or sister who barbecues to put on this show. So Adrian Miller joining me here on the show. So as you're getting through this book, uh, I would assume because of the success of the other books that you've had, you were already pretty tight with the publisher. So are you already telling them in advance, hey, I have, you know, book number three in the works and I'll bring it to you? Or do you have to are are you under like a it seems a lot of the folks that are writing barbecue books, it's always a one-off deal. They're not signed to like a four-book deal or 10-book deal or something like this. Are you different? Do you have a multi-book deal where you have to continually coming up with stuff? Or was it just like, hey, I have this other book and you have to repitch? Yeah, it's more the latter. But, you know, the good thing is because of the success of my books, the pitch is much easier. <laughs> you know, and um, it, as long as it's in UNC, uh, University of North Carolina Press's wheelhouse, you know, they'll publish it. Um, but I got to tell you, Greg, my uh, my upcoming books are going to be much more uh, obscure. <laughs> so I, I don't know if UNC Press will publish them. I might have to find somebody else, but we'll see. Um, the only one that I think of that I want to write that they that's within their wheelhouse is a history of African-American street vendors. Because they were the food trucks of the 1700s and 1800s. And I've got the lyrics and music for their street cries. So we can replicate what it was like to wake up in 1850s New Orleans and hear all these people, you know, trying to get their attention by their products. When are those coming out? Those sound incredibly interesting. Yeah. So um, I would love to write that in a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, The one I'm thinking about right now is a history of African-Americans in Colorado um, because... uh, uh, 2026 is the 150th birthday of Colorado. Um, so I thought a book timed with that. So I, I don't know if I'll do the street vendor before or after. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Do we think that Columbus B. Hill is the the uh, pinnacle of of you know that, that book? Because he did some huge cooks oh, yeah. back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll definitely anchor that book. And I'm so glad you mentioned him. He's he's one of the favorite people that I discovered. And part of it is because he was in Colorado, yeah. my my home turf. But, uh, you know, the massive barbecues that he pulled off, 25,000, 30,000 people, um, I, I just think it's a story to be told. And I, I don't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but um, I found his unmarked grave oh, nice. uh, site. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to work to get him a headstone and give the brother a, a, a great send-off. He died in 1923. In obscurity, obscurity, and uh, I think people should remember this guy's contribution to our history. How do you find it? So um, I was just looking through an old newspaper, and they had a little obituary blurb, and they said where he was buried. So I went out there, 
and the it's an old cemetery that's really not kept up anymore because they lost their water rights. Um, and so it took a while to find his plot because it was unmarked. And I finally found it. And I, I had passed it so many times because it's just this patch of grass. And uh, once I figured it out, I'm like, okay, this is where he is. Wow. You're totally yeah. investigative. That's very impressive. Yeah. I got a lot of spare time on my hands, man. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's certainly inspirational, no doubt about it. Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, getting back to the book, if we're looking, if we don't, or we haven't heard about it, can you give us a little, you know, high level on what the book's about and what we can find in it as a potential buyer slash reader? Yeah. So, I start off the book by uh, laying out the problem, right? This this lack of diversity, and and what I and the way I say it in a cutesy way is, I say, you know, food media is just basically saying to African American barbecuers, that's my term, um, we're just not that into you. And so I talk about that, set that up, and then I explore the early history of barbecue, and I try to you know blow blow through the haze and bring some clarity as much as possible through the sources, and then I just start, um, I and then I turn and just say, you know, is there an African origin? I explore that. Uh, and then after concluding this Native American foundation, I just explore different aspects of barbecue culture in the African American community. So I start out with church barbecue. Um, then I pr- go to these barbecue freelancers, as I call them. So these African Americans who are just put on trains, stagecoaches and boats all over the country to do barbecue. And then how they trans- transition into being entrepreneurs I talk about competitive barbecue. Then I do a whole chapter on the African-American barbecue aesthetic. Is there something exceptional exceptional about African-American barbecue? And then I do a whole chapter on sauce because there's a conventional wisdom that barbecue should be unsauced. And I think a lot of black people would join me in saying, says who? Uh, and then I end by uh, talking about this media representation thing and then the future of barbecue. So that's kind of the, that's the structure of the book. So is it is it your belief that Barbecue should be sauced. Oh, like all, absolutely! All the time. Oh yeah, man. I mean, to me, well, okay. I won't say all the time because I, I'm not going to lie. There's some pieces of barbecue where the meat is so good, you know, you just don't need the sauce. But most of the time, the sauce uh, either enhances uh, the dish or maybe makes up <laughs> for some things. But you know, in black community, man, a lot of times the sauce was the calling card. Mm. Um, for, for a barbecue because, uh, you know, I, I remember I had a conversation with an Uber driver one time and I just posed it the question and he said, oh man, look, anybody can make the meat. It's the sauce. And if you notice, if you talk to a barbecue person, they'll tell you how they cook the meat, right? They'll give you everything about that. But when you ask about the sauce, vault. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there does seem to be a little bit of a hold on the sauce recipe or they'll give you two or three of the ingredients anybody could pick out that's even got a halfway dim lit palette but when you start to get to the refined ingredients they hold those back yeah i, I call always, that a lesser piece. yeah <laughs> absolutely so uh, you know i've always been of the opinion that sauce on on the side only and uh, i totally agree sauce can complement the meat however i also agree that it could make up for shortcomings which is why when i used to drink when i was really into wine i only drank wine at room temperature because heat or cold changes things. Uh, same thing with the sauce, right? So if you get it on the side, you taste the meat first, it's tenderness, it's texture, it's just it's general flavor there. Now maybe the sauce adds another dimension to it. Sauce could take away from yeah. it as well, much like in wine. a lot of, And especially with uh, white wine, a lot of people like to drink that uh, chilled refrigerator temperature, maybe even cooler than that, or drop some ice cubes in it. But guess what? When it's right. cold... It's hiding everything. You, if you take wow. a glass of white wine 
out of the refrigerator and drank it and then let a glass sit out for an hour or two and then take a same sip. It's a completely different wine because now everything is opened up. There's nothing hiding it. It's not making it thin. Uh, and it's a yeah. completely different bottle of wine, which can also go from being a really good bottle of wine cold to being a really piece of shit wine when it's at room temperature. But now you yeah. know what the wine is, right? So that's yeah. why I've always yeah. been more of a, a stickler on the sauce on the side. But I'm a, you know, I do have a secret sauce recipe that I give out if you subscribe to the newsletter. But um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big sauce guy as well. So uh, yeah. let me do this. I'm going to do a quick read, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll tie up on the book, and then we'll get into some other conversation. That's all right with you. All right. All right, stand by. We're talking with Adrian Miller. You can find him over at adrianmiller.com. You can follow him on Twitter, and he's pretty active over there, at Soul Food Scholar, and interact with him. I'll talk to you quickly about Pits and Spits. Since 1983, Pits and Spits has been handcrafting smokers and grills in Houston, Texas. In that time, Pits and Spits establishing itself as one of the premier brands and high-quality offset smokers and more recently pellet cookers. Setting itself apart by using heavy 7 and 10 gauge stainless steel in every cooker. Fully welded construction that you can feel when you use the unit. 304 stainless roll top lid and front shelf on every single smoker. So why does it matter? Well, by using higher quality materials, the smokers can reach and maintain temperatures, allowing you to worry more about the meat than the heat. By providing a fully welded smoker, you don't have to worry about grease or smoke leaking out of the barrel or that grill rattling apart as you move it through the backyard. And by using 304 stainless, you have an heirloom quality piece you can pass down for generations. Now, where some companies focus on being the low-cost provider, Pits and Spits focuses on craftsmanship and using quality materials. Are there cheaper ways you could make these? Sure. But they don't like tack welds, cheap stainless, and electronics that you can't trust. Having in-house manufacturing gives them complete control of their design and standards. Not something you find with stuff brought in from overseas. Their steel suppliers supply material to be used in some of the harshest environments around. So they will perform in any and all conditions, like here in Cleveland or Florida or Boston or wherever you're at. Their controllers are made right here in the States as well. So they have unimpeded transparency into the programming. They have a dealer network across the country. If there isn't one close to you, give Koi a a call in the shop. 844-650-6250. Whether you're a backyard grill master or a competition cooking team, Pits and Spits has a product for you. You can check them out at pitsandspits.com, all spelled out. Or you can see their Pits in the Wild across social media with their handle at Pits and Spits. Once again, all spelled out. Pits and Spits, check them out. Love them. Pellet cookers are really popular. We're back with more Adrian Miller. Stick around. Be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Celebrating over 10 years of prolific and unparalleled live fire barbecue and grilling talk. And yes, it's still being done from Cleveland, Ohio. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. This portion being brought to you by Smithfield.com for recipes and tips through the grilling season. Go to Smithfield.com and get advice from Chris Lilly, Darren Worth, Ernest Cervantes, and Charles Cridlin. Now, if you are on the competition circuit and you are a Smithfield committed cook, share your first place finishes in shoulder and ribs by going to Smokin' with smithfield.com and report what you're winning and what you're using with your wins. As we are rejoined once again by Adrian Miller, 
the soul food hey, scholar. Go ahead. Yeah, dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. I just wanted to make a slight correction. It's adrianemiller.com. Um, so, yeah, if there's people who want to find me. Good so. Gracious. All right. I apologize for that. We don't want to give That's out right. the wrong information. Nice. Yeah. Adrianemiller.com. E is an echo, of course. Um, All right, so uh, we were talking about the book and uh, what you can expect as a reader. Who are the top black pit masters out there, in your opinion? Uh, You've mentioned Rodney Scott, of course, but uh, holding him to the side, who do you think is is top level right now? Man, I got a lot of love for Ed Mitchell, another guy who's been on the scene for a long time, North Carolina, whole hog guy. Hall of Fame nominated. Uh, Kevin Kevin Bloodsoe. Man, uh, his place out in L.A., I just love his stuff um, a lot. And then um, I love the the Houston joints. Um, I don't know who the pitmaster is, but I'll just name the restaurants. Uh, Ray's and Burns and Gatlin's and Greg Gatlin in, in Houston. Those guys are, are doing some really great stuff. Interesting thing about Greg Gatlin is he has a woman named Michelle Wallace, who's his executive chef. So she is uh, in the mix uh, back there. Um, trying to think who else the other people have died recently. So, um, I was thinking about LC Richardson of LCs in Kansas city. Um, uh, and then I guess the, the, the guy at Q's, uh, wings and tips in Chicago, that was pretty good. And then there's a place in Cleveland. I really liked, I don't know who the pit master is, but, um, Mount Pleasant barbecue. I don't know if that rings a bell to you. In Cleveland? Um, you know, a lot of, yeah, dude, that was next level, man. And what I loved about the place is, I had so many options, but you can actually pick where your ribs come from on the rack. So you can say the small end or the center cut. I, I was impressed. Were they uh, were they spare ribs? Yeah, spare ribs. Hmm. I'm pretty sure it's called Mount Pleasant Barbecue, and I and I liked Hot Sauce Williams too, but I, I really like Mount Pleasant Barbecue. Mount Pleasant Barbecue, one two two seven five Kinsman Road, Cleveland, Ohio. Hmm. Yep. Well, this is oh, the first I'm glad time my memory. Right. Yeah, you got yeah. it. All right. Well, that's um, going to be Brian on the to do list. Oh. Okay. Um, Brian Furman in Atlanta. Interesting guy. There's also a guy named Howard Conyers. I don't know if you know yes, about him. Uh, he's a rocket yep. scientist. Been on the show, of course. How dare yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, doing interesting stuff. So that's the, those are the people that come to mind right now. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. One other person. I'm going to have his barbecue in two weeks. Oh. Uh, Matt Horn out of yeah. Oakland. Yeah. Horn yeah. barbecue. Yeah, I get to check him in. He's, yeah. a, he's a hot piece of dynamite out there. Yeah, social media game is tight. Yep. I mean, you know, a lot of people can learn from him um, in terms of getting a, building a reputation and getting the word out there. And then also, yeah, I'm sorry, the Jones sisters, Deborah and Mary Jones in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, after their their uh, appearance on Queer Eye, yeah. uh, man, their b- business has been booming. <laughs> and then, you know, the cool thing is they have a barbecue vending machine. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah, they got a 24-7, so it's a machine, right? It's got sauce. It's got sandwiches. It's got, like, entree plates. I think that's next level. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and is that like in front of the store so you can just get it whenever you want or is it somewhere else? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen, I, I've only seen pictures of it. So I haven't experienced it myself because when I was there a couple of years ago, they hadn't rolled it out yet. So wow. my impression is it's on the side of the store, but I'm not sure about that. Interesting. Barbecue yeah. vending machine. I heard of a bacon vending machine over in Ohio State's campus uh, two years ago, like uh, you know, pre-COVID. But I mean... That was so popular, it was like constantly running out because, well, bacon, of course. And everybody loves bacon. So, uh, you know, right, there's right. this ever popular Texas monthly top 50 barbecue restaurants list. Do you mm-hmm. foresee a top 50 black barbecue restaurants list at some point? 
I don't know because I, I think the key to that is you got to have somebody dedicated to going hitting all these spots across the country. And I don't know of a publication or somebody who's got that kind of resources. I mean, you know, I'm on the come up, but I'm still a broke brother. So, you know, I'm, I'm not the one that's going to be doing it. But uh, yeah, I would love to see that. In my book, I have my top 20. And that was hard because I, I easily, I, I think I have a top 30 list really, but you know, I had to pare it down. Um, but yeah, if somebody's dedicated enough to really just go and research these joints, I would love to see that. Adrian Miller joining me here on the show. AdrianEMiller.com is the website. If you want to check him out and grab a copy of the book, Black Smoke, he will autograph it. And uh, however you want it, as he said here a little bit earlier in the show, I talked with Meathead a little bit about it in the first hour uh, we have Juneteenth coming up here uh, in, what is it today, the 8th, so 11 days from now. Uh, your thoughts on Juneteenth, uh, and maybe if you want to maybe give us a little bit more or fill in a little bit more background on the holiday itself. And it, it does seem to have, I mean, just the basis of it is, is interesting history, but it does seem to have this weird ebb and flow of, of popularity through you know those middle 1800s into where we are present day. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a way to think about Juneteenth is the last word on African-American freedom. So the story goes on June 19th, 1865, you know, well after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, uh, Union General Gordon Granger arrives in Galveston, Texas, and reads General Order Number 3, which uh, informed the enslaved people there that they were actually free. Um, so the story goes is that, you know, that's, this is the first time these people heard about that. But I, you know, I, I doubt that that was the first time because the rumor mill, I mean, news of freedom, I'm sure passed there. But this was something that was enforceable because the Union Army was there and they could actually liberate people. The, you know, the interesting thing, Greg, is before Juneteenth and even after, there were m- multiple emancipation traditions tied to different dates celebrated all over the country. So the thing that's been remarkable to me about Juneteenth and how, is how it's completely supplanted all of these other strong local traditions. And, and I think, like you said, it's because some of them ebbed. Uh, you know, like there was a certain generation that really celebrated them vigorously. And then, you know, if the kids aren't into it and that tradition doesn't get passed on, it dies out. And it also shows that Texans are the best cheerleaders because uh, it's really ex- expat Texans that arrive in different places mm-hmm. that really revive uh, Juneteenth traditions and, and helped spread it around the country. That certainly was the case in Denver. For a long time, Denver had one of the strongest Juneteenth celebrations. So Juneteenth um, is known for the early celebrations were full of reverence. So they would read, they would read the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, formerly enslaved people would actually give testimony. Uh, there would be parades. Usually it was connected to a church. Um, and then it started to get an entertainment vibe with more parades and playing baseball. But the one constant is the food. Uh, and in Texas, it was about barbecue and uh, red drink and watermelon. And remember, red is a color and a flavor in black culture. So we don't get a, caught up in calling things cherry or strawberry or that it has hints of cranberry. It's just red. So uh, in, in a lot of, in Texas, it was big red soda um, was the kind of the preferred drink. And so that that whole food connection um, plays on. And, and people have been saying that Juneteenth is associated with red foods and you know, people have asked me, well, what does that red signify? And some say it's the blood of shed of ancestors, enslaved ancestors. Some point to a, a favorite royal color of some courts in West Africa of, of royalty in West Africa. So there's a lot of theories, but I think the bloodshed theory is the one that uh, has the most traction. Will there will this year be 
the biggest Juneteenth celebration through the country, do you think? I think so, and just in terms of near uh, the sheer number of celebrations. So, for instance, next week I'm going to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, home of the Little League World Series, to kick off their Juneteenth tradition. They're starting one, and so they've invited me out to be the, the keynote speaker. So I think um, the events of last year and the, 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 the desire to affirm black culture and consciousness of racial justice really ramped up interest in Juneteenth. And so people who are just now hearing about it and saying, oh, we don't have a tradition here. We're going to start Juneteenth. So I, I think in terms of just massive numbers of, of celebrations, yes, probably the, the largest ever. All right. So let's uh, transition here just for a second in our remaining time this evening and uh, talk frankly and openly about race and, you know, where we are at this stage of the game in, in 2021. I think there's a hope or a want to say, well, if you look back 30 years ago and 40 years ago, it was much worse than it is now. And things are, you know, much better, regardless of what we've been seeing here over the last uh, 12 months, uh, 14 months, that it's, it's still much better now than it was. And I don't have a perspective to really give because I'm not a black guy. I thought I was black yeah. between 88 and 92, but um, I'm not. So, you know, my running conversation is it's easy to say this or that, but the bottom line is this. I don't leave my house as a black man every mm-hmm. morning and live that life every day. You do. Mm-hmm. So I know mm-hmm. it's different for you than it is for me because maybe where the communication wasn't as prevalent or the instant, you know, this is what's happening and, and that's what's happening as it was, you know, 20 years ago as it is now. Um, yeah. It, it's obviously different. So where, in your opinion, do you think we sit in this whole racial situation in 2021? Yeah. So um, despite all of the absurdity and the sadness and all the things that are associated with being an African-American in this country, what leaves me hopeful is, um, over the last year, I know that I've experienced more affirmation than I've ever experienced from various white people. I know that white people have been reading the books on anti-racism, have been di- having discussion. Um, so one thing, you know, when, when, when we first were in this moment, right after George Floyd was murdered, uh, I wondered if it was going to be the same old, same old, where we pay a lot of attention for two months. Yeah. And then we're off to something else. And that has not happened. And that is surprising to me. Um, so wh- where I think we are now, and I'll just talk about the white side of the equation, yeah. um, is that I, I think there are a lot of people now that have had, they, they've had their consciousness raised. They're aware that, hey, things aren't right. I think what they're grappling with now is, well, what do I do? Yes. What do I do to actually help for racial justice, you know, help racial justice? And that's where the books and discussions are helping. But I think still people are grappling with that. Um, and I, I can tell you from the black side of the equation and people of color, you know, there's a wariness. There's there's this deep cynicism about whether whites really want to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work, man, because we're dealing with centuries of stuff. Right. And it's going to be messy. And we have a lot to do. But uh, I think there's more people ready to have that conversation. There's a whole bunch of people that don't want to have it. Let's not get that twisted. And we still got people dying. 
um, you know, at the hands of law enforcement and all those other things are happening. We have inequality in housing, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, all of these, and not to minimize it by saying blah, 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 but just to know we have a lot of challenges still in our society. But I think the possibility of having a true multiracial coalition to bring about racial justice, I think we're at this moment more than we have been in any other time. And what's really um, heartening to me is we've got a lot of young people who are paying attention to this. I mean, when I when I saw a lot of footage of protests, uh, you know, there were young people of all kinds of colors out on the streets saying, this is not right. We need a better society. Um, can they bring their parents along? <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But um, so I'm hopeful about that in the midst of all the other things that make me kind of sad. Um, what I've been thinking about in my own work is well, I, we all have to, you know, if we want racial justice, if we want a shared future, we've got to figure out how we get involved. And one thing I've been thinking about is how can food play a role? Because what I'm finding is there are fewer and fewer spaces in our society for to, us to come together. And I think the table is one of those few places left. Mm -hmm. um, the thing I haven't figured out, the square I haven't, uh, the circle I haven't squared is how do you get the person who doesn't want to hear about race, doesn't want to talk about it? How do you get them into an inviting space where they at least listen and maybe engage? I haven't figured that out because in a lot of the spaces that I've created to have dialogue, it's usually people who are, you know, they're down with the cause. Um, and that's needed, right? Because we all need to recheck in with each other, learn from each other. But we really have to start expanding these circles to get the folks that don't want to hear it. Is it worse to have the black man or woman who is, uh, I don't know, 50 plus uh, that is just jaded for obvious reasons and doesn't want to have that conversation? Oh, or uh, the opposite side of that. You have the, the white guy or woman who is just, you know, a, a racist to no end. Or is it worse to be somebody... Oh, I stopped that. Come on. Um, is it worse to have somebody that appears to be apathetic or maybe not apathetic, but as you said, doesn't want to have the conversations just because it's comfortable. They're not, you know this way or that way, but you know, like those first two people I talked about, but they, yeah, those almost seem to be to me, like the, the people that would help fold in and get more people into this positive coalition mindset that you're talking about. Yeah. I, I think wherever you come from the, to me, the most challenging situation is somebody who just doesn't even want to listen. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do by creating these spaces with food and, and other things is I'm trying to get people to a point where they'll just at least listen to somebody. Now they may judge what they hear, you know, whatever, but if they can just start listening to other people and, you know, uh, like I, I, the reason why I said, depending on where you come from is because I know a lot of people who are very confident that they're not racist, you know, they don't have a problem. They, and, you know, you find that they haven't done a lot of self-examination. So they've got stuff that they need to work through, but they think they're so good that they don't need to do that work. Right. And they're so they're on everybody else, but you know, we all have a lot to learn from each other and about ourselves. So how do we continue this momentum? Uh, I mean, we talk about the younger people that you had said that was heartening to you to see those, everybody kind of uh, getting into the, to the streets and, and coming together to, to promote this. But, you know, there continues to be, uh, you know, an overwhelming number of uh, boomers out there that are, you know, one way or the other. And mm -hmm. my concern continues to be that this moment is different and eventually it loses steam 
And then what? Like, does something else happen and it just is worse? Um, I guess I don't, I don't ever see where it's not. I hate to say that. Right. Right. No, I, I hear you on that. And that's, that's one of the things, and that's one of the pitches I actually make to people about why we need to be in dialogue. Because if we can just start talking, we could probably prevent some stuff from happening um, or at least have the support system set up when something horrible happens. And I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, six years ago, there was the guy that walked into the black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed that Bible study group. And I was always fascinated by the fact that we didn't see a lot of rioting in Charleston um, right after that. And what I found out in talking to people in that community is that um, a lot of the community had been engaged in dialogue about that. So in that horrible moment, they rallied and um, there was a cohesiveness that was maybe a little bit unexpected because of the the benefits of that dialogue. And I, I'm just hoping that we can do that in other communities because unfortunately there are things that are going to happen, but maybe we can mitigate the effect of that or at least prevent things from happening. And so that's why I think it's really interesting that we're starting to see people engage with law enforcement uh, to build a more community-based policing model. You know, the, the, the conversations about reimagining policing. And we have also people looking at other aspects of society, like, you know, how can we support black entrepreneurs to close the wealth gap, you know, how can we eliminate the things that are happening in housing and all of these other what I call opportunity gaps that show up in different areas. And that's just a, a nice, uh, you know, a name I came up with um, for disparities, racial disparities in different things, access to capital, education, healthcare. Uh, so I, I think it's a really in- interesting time, but we need creative people and we need people that are willing to stick, uh, stick with it because like I said earlier, this is going to be messy. This is not easy stuff that we have to get through. And then once we have the discussion about race, we've got to talk about gender, what happened in the Native Americans. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to work through in our society. Do we need younger people in in all forms of politics, local, federal, state, all that? Absolutely. I think we need younger people engaged. And my hope is that the older people will listen to the younger people and not dismiss them and say, okay, yeah, 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 youngins, y'all need to go and sit in the corner. Um, I think we need a vibrant intergenerational discussion. And I think we would benefit tremendously from hearing that. Um, and I, you know, I, I have friends that have told me, you know, I, I'm kind of tired, man. I, I'm, whatever the youngins want to do, I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm down with that. Hmm. And I, I'm hoping people will be a little bit more engaged than that. But uh, yeah, I think we, we need to talk across gender lines, age, race, all of these lines. We just need to start talking and listening to each other. I've often had the perhaps unpopular remedy for this whole racial situation. And I actually pitched it a number of years ago to Akil Smith, who was the at that point the head of African-American studies at Ohio University, my alma mater. And uh, mm-hmm. we were, at, um, I think that's when the Paula Dean. Uh, racial thing came out a bunch of years ago so um, that was the first time on the show that we had talked about race and I said hey you know easy fix anybody that's older than five gets terminated we have to kill them all Uh, now is society gonna be a little rough with five-year-olds running the roost could there be some you know, deaths because people don't know how to feed themselves or go to the doctors because, I mean, we're killing everybody. But, I mean, if you if you take away the dramatics of that, I mean, that fixes it, right? I mean, you know, five years old, um, you, 
even if you have the worst mom or dad on, on, on either side of the equation, you're probably not imprinted at that point. And now they're gone. And you're just like, hey, we're just trying to survive here. And you're brought together. Everybody's working together. And now you've basically come up with a generation of five-year-olds that didn't know anything better. And oh, by the way, there's nobody to influence. We've killed everybody. Me included. You included, Adrian. But we're sacrificing <laughs> for the greater good. I mean, that's kind of uh, outrageous, but it would work. Man, that's the most serious reset argument yes, I've ever heard. Right. But, you know, wait, but yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because don't we often look at little kids and they don't care, right? They right. just want to play. Right. Um, but as they age, right, they get messages from society and this stuff replicates itself. Because I've seen uh, through previous generations the hope that the young people – um, through some means would would bring a more um, harmonious racial future together. You know, I think people said that about Motown music. And then we said it about hip hop, right? We thought, oh, yeah, this is going to. But we still see these these racist uh, structures replicate themselves. Um, so that's a it, that's intriguing idea. Yeah, probably not going to happen. I'm not an advocate for it. But <laughs> I'm intriguing. Yes, of course, because we're both not five. Um, so yeah. that means ultimate termination. Nevertheless. Um, all right. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about here before I let you go tonight? And I appreciate the extended time this evening. Yeah. You know, um, just like, because we're talking about racial justice, I just, uh, implore your listeners to, you know, engage people, um, and just understand mistakes are going to be made. Don't be hesitant because you, you, you're worried about offending somebody, you know, that stuff's going to happen, but we have to start talking to each other and engage each other. If we're going to have the future we want. And, uh, you know, I'm signed up. I'm trying to figure out how to get there myself. I don't have all the answers, but I'm, I'm just hoping there are more people that really want to be on that journey. Open, honest conversation right here with Adrian Miller. We certainly appreciate it. The Soul Food Scholar. You can follow him on Twitter. You can go to his website, Adrian E. Miller. Get the new book, Black Smoke. Everybody's getting it and reading it and loving it, and he will sign it for you. And appreciate you coming back on, uh, turning a week after last, uh, going through those technical hurdles, but much better this time. And uh, always appreciate the time. We'll do it again soon. All right, man. Thank you so much. You got Peace. it. There he is. Adrian Miller right there. Talking about race. Everybody not necessarily down with that because this is a barbecue and grilling show. But guess what? We're going to be talking about important things on this show. That's right. Sometimes they have nothing to do with barbecue or grilling. That's all right. Got to do it. As Adrian said, we got to engage. Let's do that. All right, let's let me remind you. By the way, you can find Adrian Miller over at adrianemiller.com and grab a copy of the book. He's going to send one to me. He will have autographed it. And then we will give it away on the show through some type of a call in or email or whatever. And then I will countersign if you want. Again, it's not a requirement. But if I send you the book and you don't ask for me to sign it, I'm not going to just sign it on my own. <laughs> right? That would be tacky. But if you want me to sign it, I will. I'll do it. I've done it plenty of times. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this show. We'll be right back. And we'll do that wrapping. Stick around. We'll be right back. Whole Packers, full racks, legs and thighs. 
Injecting butts. If you've never heard this before, you might think you found the best triple X show ever. Let's get back to the most homoerotic host out there today, Craig Wimpy. Welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by Vortic Watch Company, a small batch custom watch manufacturing and vintage restoration company located in North Colorado. They take the antique American pocket watch and turn it into a wristwatch, just like this. Their mission, preserve and enhance the legacy of manufacturing excellence in America. In order to do that, they combine traditional cutting-edge technology to create unique quality functional timepieces with exceptional value. Here's the coolest part. Each watch that Vortic makes is unique and one-of-a-kind. Vortic founded on the motto that America wasn't assembled. It was built. Check out Vortic watches.com for more information or to grab a watch you got to sign up for the newsletter because i do one watch a day i think uh, the one yesterday looked almost exactly like this one it wasn't this one but it almost looks exactly like that one it was in illinois or i think they call that the elgin i don't know if it's still available for sale it was earlier this afternoon but like most of their watches they're probably already gone so sign up and be ready to buy if you find one that you like All right, let's get out of here. All the way back in the first hour was Meathead for two segments. We talked about his induction into the 2021 Barbecue Hall of Fame. We talked about his rebuttal to Derek Rich's most popular barbecue websites that he posted a handful of weeks ago. And we ended with a short discussion of Juneteenth, and then we went to the second hour where I called out famous Dave Anderson. Dave. And then we talked with Adrian Miller, finished up the Black Smoke talk, and then we had some state of where we are with race relations in 2021. Good conversation that followed there. So if you're just tuning in, that will be up Thursday and podcast, or you can go back and watch the video archive as soon as I hit the stop stream button, and it will archive automatically. I don't believe I said anything that I'm going to then pull the video down like I did last week. That was a mistake on my part, but it should be ready to go. Big show planned for you next week. Stephen Reichlin is in. We also have, I believe, the Texas Monthly Barbecue Editor, Daniel Vaughn, being in, amongst others. September 11th, 2001. I will never forget until next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is your program host and proud U.S. American, Greg Rempe. Good night now. This is Steve, the cookout coach, and you're listening to the Barbecue Central Show.